The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. More than 40% of people in their 40s and 50s have both an aging parent and a child under the age of 21. Caring for people in multiple generations demands time, love, attention, and more. Welcome to Caught Between Generations with your host, Dr. Merrill Griff. Our program will bring you the information you need as a family caregiver for everyone for whom you care. With guest experts and resources to help you keep sane and organized. Now, here is Dr. Merrill Griff. Welcome to Caught Between Generations. You know, I was actually feeling like a little tired today and, and just a little bit down. And and you know what? Knowing that you were going to be turning tuning in today and I was going to be able to spend some time with you, you know, actually I feel like energized. I, I feel better. So thank you so much for, for listening today. So the question becomes, when your session with your physician begins with the words... I'm sorry, but the tests did not turn out as well as we would have liked. And we have a problem. It's really, really difficult to hear those words. So I ask you, have you ever been in that situation? Have you or a loved one been diagnosed with a serious illness? Do you want to know how to communicate with the doctors? Do you want to know how to communicate with your family? And that would include children and grandchildren. Do you have questions about the treatment that you've been wondering about and you haven't asked? Or do you have questions about pain management that may not be working for you as well as you've wanted it to or that you're concerned about or you're just too uncomfortable to ask? Today's guests, Dr. Stephen Pantelet and Dr. Mel Pohl, are going to be taking your questions. So give us a call at 1-866-472-5792. We're going to begin with Dr. Stephen Pantelet, and he is the author of Life After the Diagnosis, Expert Advice on Living Well with Serious Illness for Patients and Caregivers. He's the founding director of the University of California San Francisco Palliative Care Program, and this program has received a Circle of Life Award in recognition of excellence and innovation. He's also the director of their Palliative Care Leadership Center that has trained teams, listen to this, from over 200 hospitals across the country on how to establish palliative care centers. He is an expert in palliative care, and we are so happy that you are joining us today on Caught Between Generations. Thanks. So, really a pleasure. Dr. Palliative, I'm sorry, I'm about to call you Dr. Palliative. Well, maybe you are <laughs> Dr. <Yeah>. Palliative. <laughs> we have sleep doctors, we have sex doctors, and now we have palliative care. We do, yes. So do. can you define for us what exactly is palliative care? So, you know, Merle, imagine that you're on a plane cruising at 36,000 feet, and then suddenly the plane drops 10,000 feet, and you look out the window, 
and one of the engines is on fire, and you think the plane is going to crash, and you're going to die. And that's what it's like when the doctor says, you know, you have cancer, you have dementia, you have congestive heart failure. Um, you're in a panic, and you don't know what to do. What you should do is look for palliative care and get palliative care. And, and what palliative care is, it's care that's focused on improving quality of life for people with serious illness. And it helps people make good decisions about their care. It provides an extra layer of support while people are getting treatment for their illness, for their heart failure, for their cancer. At the same time, they get this care that's really focused on being free from pain. Um, how can they feel as good as possible? How can they make really good decisions about the care that they want? And how can we address the whole person, you know, not just the disease, but really think about the whole person, their emotional experience, their psychological experience, their spiritual issues that come up, uh, and even the logistical issues about how to get treatment and where to get it. So paint this picture for me. I mean, am I, or am I dealing with physicians, psychiatrists, social workers, nurses? I mean, who am I getting services from or, or just a palliative care physician? How does that work? Yeah. Uh, so when, when people get palliative care, palliative care is delivered by a team. So we work together. It's doctors and nurses and social workers and chaplains because when people are dealing with serious illness, uh, they have concerns that really run the gamut. Uh, everything from how do I get my pain really well controlled, but they also have spiritual concerns. What does this mean for my life? What is my legacy? Um, why did this happen to me? Um, those are really spiritual questions that people have and that they want to be able to talk about with a chaplain, for example. Uh, they have just logistical questions about who's going to care for me, where are they going to care for me, how am I going to be cared for. Um, those are things that a social worker can be really helpful with. Um, and same thing, nurses, you know, who can visit you at home and talk to you in the, in the clinic and help you with your, um, with your symptoms and make sure that you're getting the care that you really want. So is it different from hospice? Because I know there's often a confusion among hospice and palliative care. So the way we think about it is that uh, all hospice is a type of palliative care, but not all palliative care is hospice. So you can get palliative care at home. That's not hospice. You can get palliative care in the hospital like we have here at UCSF. You can get it in the clinic like we also offer here at UCSF and at many uh, institutions around the country, many hospitals and many clinics around the country. Um, So palliative care is really the umbrella of care that's focused on helping people with serious illness um, have the best possible quality of life for as long as possible. Um, And hospice is one way to deliver that care. Actually, listening to all of the services, I mean, it, it, it actually makes you feel better. I mean, it suddenly is like, an, you know, an aura of comfort comes over because it, it, it's hard. I mean, when my mother first had her stroke, in, in retrospect now, you know, would it have been wise probably to call, to call in the services of a palliative care physician? I mean, is it ever too early to, to ask for palliative care? Yeah. Um, so, you know, in, in thinking about your mom, I would have said, yes, after a stroke is a perfect time to call in palliative care. It's never too early. Um, and the challenge is that sometimes the doctor will say, you know, oh, you're not ready for palliative care because they misunderstand palliative care and they think it's really about the end of life. And um, while we do take care of people close to the end of life, palliative care really is about how do you live well? 
You know, I, I always say it's my job is not about helping people die. It's about helping people live as well as possible for as long as possible. And the way we do that is by helping people from the moment they get this diagnosis. And that's what I write about in my book. Literally, chapter one is you get this terrible diagnosis. What do you do now? Um, and help people think about the care that they want to get so that they get really, um, so they get the care that they really want. You know, Abraham Lincoln said, it's not the years in your life, but the life in your years that matters. And how do we make those years um, as good as possible? So how is this paid for? I mean, let me just ask you that basic question. So uh, insurance pays for palliative care. So okay. whatever health insurance you have, it will pay for palliative care. So if you can find it, it will get paid for. That's right. really, that's, that is not the issue at all. The challenge is finding it. And what I tell people is, you know, wherever, wherever you live, whatever hospital you're going to, whatever clinic you go to, just um, the one thing you can Google about this is, you, you know, put in, your, put in your, where you live and put in palliative care and see where those services are available. See if your local hospital offers palliative care, and if it does, that's the one you want to go to. Um, the rest, you can't Google your way through. This is too complicated. Um, there's, a, there's not enough good information that's specific that's going to help you. So I always say you can't Google your way through that, but you can Google your way to find palliative care. Um, you can also go to a website called www getpalliativecare.org, and it, will, it has a list of palliative care services across the country. Um, and, and the reason I wrote the book is really to be the guide for people um, so that they can figure out how to make these uh, good decisions as they go forward. So I'm in the middle of a discussion with my physician, um, and he or she is just using words that I don't understand. Um, and I'm actually too embarrassed to ask them to repeat it or to tell me what it is they're talking about. So how do you navigate your way through, through all of that medical jargon and what they're saying to you? So doctors use jargon all the time. That's part of what we learn in medical school is how to communicate clearly uh, with each other. And so we have to learn those medical words. But the problem is that when we use the jargon with family members, it just ends up with a lot of confusion. Uh, So what I tell my patients is, you know, if you don't understand something, just put your hand up and just tell the doctor to stop and ask. And a lot of people feel embarrassed when that happens, but I... What I write in my book is don't be embarrassed. You need to understand everything, and your doctor should speak in simple language. I teach my students to use simple language as well, not to insult anyone, um, but quite the opposite, just to make sure people really do understand. And there's a lot of words um, that doctors use just casually that is really, it's just medicine, and there's no way to understand it. And, in fact, when I go to the doctor, um, when my my mom was sick with cancer, um, they were talking in jargon, in a way that I didn't understand, and I'm a physician. And I think, you know, if, there are, if, there are, if my colleagues use words that I don't understand and I'm a doctor, how can we expect our patients to, to understand? And so just tell them to stop, put your hand up, and say, hey, what does that mean? Okay, good advice. So one of the things um, that you talk about in your book that I found surprising is you discuss the side effects of, of common treatments of which we should be aware. Can, can you explain that to us a little bit? Sure. So many of the treatments that we take, we, we don't realize just uh, what the side effects might be, and they seem pretty simple when you, when you just think about them, but they turn out to be 
really significant and can really throw you for a loop. So I think one perfect example is radiation treatment. So uh, there are many cancers for which radiation is very helpful. There are side effects of cancer, for example, when it spreads to the bone, where radiation can be very helpful in reducing the pain from cancer growing in the bone. And when you undergo radiation treatment, you know, you... You come to a, you know, you generally come to the center where you're getting it done and you'll kind of lie on a table and they'll put the machine over you and it'll take, you know, a minute. It's really quick. The treatment itself is not very long. And my patients always say at the beginning, you know, that was fine, Dr. Pallet. That, you know, I, I don't know. My grandmother had radiation treatment initially and for her breast cancer, she said, you know, this is a great treatment. I don't feel anything. And it's true. You don't, but it adds up. And what people don't realize is that it adds up and it's cumulative. It is radiation exposure. And it's amazing how even a radiation to just a small part of your body can make you feel so fatigued and so tired over time. And you may notice changes on the skin, redness and soreness that develops on the skin over the area. And then at about two weeks, people are just exhausted. They're really tired. That's after the treatment is over typically when you're not coming to see the doctor anymore for the radiation treatment. And knowing that in advance can really help you anticipate it, talk with a doctor about what treatments can you do, and to really plan for the fact that, you know, you're going to be tired from this. I think the other thing we have to be aware of is that traditionally, for example, for pain that is spread to the bones, we have many patients who have that problem and it's very painful. Radiation is helpful. Traditionally, they would get maybe 10 treatments. So they come over 10 days to get 10 treatments. But there are very good studies now that show us that one treatment is just as effective for relieving your pain. So rather than having to come to the radiation uh, treatment center or to the hospital 10 times in a row for people who are sick and having pain, you can get it in one treatment. It's called single fraction. Fraction is how they divide up the total dose, single fraction radiation. And so what I always tell my patients is when, if, you're, if you have bone pain from cancer and someone recommends radiation, that's good. Just tell them, insist that you want single fraction radiation for Thank you so much. We're talking to Dr. Stephen Panelat, who is the author of Life After the Diagnosis. When we return, we'll be asking him to share with us how do you share health news, bad health news with your family, um, and how do you hire a caregiver, among some other issues. Stay with us. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. At SarahCare, we provide daytime activities and health-related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities at home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-Care.com. 
your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. To Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We're talking to Dr. Stephen Penelet, who is the author of Life After the Diagnosis, Expert Advice on Living Well with Serious Illness for Patients and Caregivers. And during the break, Dr. Penelet and I were discussing the issue of reporting pain and how important that is for your physician and for your own well-being. Um, And I was sharing with him that Many of my seniors at Care often have difficulty communicating that because sometimes the pain is better in the morning than it is at night. So the whole communication clearly of how much pain they're really having frequently doesn't happen um, as clearly as they could. So, Dr. Penelet, what's your suggestion for recording or tracking your pain so that your physician can really help you? Only you know your pain. It's the one area in medicine where patients always know more than their doctors and nurses about their experience. There's no, there's no test for pain. There's no way to measure it. There's no blood test we can do, no x-ray that tells us whether someone is in pain or not. So you have to report it to your doctor and nurse um, for them to know how you're feeling. Uh, the best thing to do is to draw up a grid, time of day, and how much pain you're having. And you can do that, you know, zero is no pain, 10 is the worst pain I can imagine. And you can write that down for yourself on zero and which is what we use a lot in the hospital. If it's easier, just rate it as none, mild, moderate, severe. That can be easier to do. And keep track. I woke up at seven o'clock this morning. How was my pain? And what did I do about it? If it was severe, did I take an extra pain medicine? And if I did, write it down. And then an hour later, how am I feeling? Did the pain go from an eight to a four? Did it go from an eight to a six? And really keep close track of both how much pain medicine you end up taking and then what the response is to it. And that will help your doctor and nurse be able to adjust your pain medicine so that you can get really good pain control. And, and you have to be willing to take the pain medicine. Today we have this war on drugs, which for people with serious illness too often becomes a war on pain. And, and we have to be willing uh, to take the opioid pain medications, things like morphine, uh, for people with serious illness are really important for getting the, often very important for getting their pain well controlled and you have to be able to take the medicine. People worry about being addicted. For example, when, when my grandmother uh, had her uh, cancer and then had some pain in her back, uh, she, I was visiting her in Florida and she said, you know, I'm, I'm going to the doctor, so come with me. She wanted to take her grandson, the doctor, to the, uh, to the <laughs> doctor with her. So I said, of course, Safta, I'll go with you. So we go there and I said, you know, Safta, you have to ask the doctor for codeine. I think you really need coding for this pain because it's really bothering me. I don't want you to take a lot of Advil because that can cause bleeding in the stomach. I think this is going to really help you. So I, 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 you know, I coached her on it and there we were sitting there and she, she's talking about her pain. She said to the doctor, you know, doctor, I, you know, with this pain, I was wondering how about some coding? And the doctor sort of hemmed and hawed, uh, you know, I'm, well, you know, I don't know. I'm worried about you being addicted. Now, my grandmother was 85 years old, um, never drank, never smoked, never did drugs, as far as I knew. So I thought, maybe he knew something about my grandmother I didn't know. Um, 
but it was interesting that he was worried about it. My grandmother was at basically almost no risk of, of that being an issue for her. Um, and so uh, I had to step in and discuss this with him. Uh, but the worry about addiction is not just for patients, it's for doctors as well. And so patients have to be their own good advocate in this area. Um, people with serious illness often need these medications. And uh, while addiction is a real concern, particularly for people who've had a history of addiction, it's not something that we generally worry about in people who don't have that problem and, for, and who are having serious illness, who have cancer or heart failure, have had a stroke and, uh, or Parkinson's disease and are having a lot of pain. And so we have to ask those questions and not allow uh, worries uh, about addiction to get in the way. So when you get that news, um, and now you've had that diagnosis of cancer or, or whatever the diagnosis is, I mean, how do you now go about sharing that with, with not only family, but, you know, with, with close friends? can be very hard to share that news. People, you know, people feel terrible when they get that news. It's like, you know, it's like they, the plane is dropping and they think they're going to die. This is like my, my patient, Sam. Um, Sam was 89 years old. He was a retired biology teacher, lived in a row house in San Francisco with his wife. Sam was still driving, volunteering at his church. One morning he had this terrible hip pain. So he came to the emergency room because he couldn't walk. And they did an x-ray that didn't show a fracture. Uh, but they did a CT scan thinking there was a small fracture. And when they looked, there was no fracture, but the CT scan um, included um, some views of his liver and he had two masses that were suspicious for cancer and he got a biopsy. And sure enough, it had colon cancer that was completely unsuspected and unrelated to his pain. Uh, So he came to my office and I had to share this really terrible news with him. And he was there with his wife and with his son. And I said, you know, Sam, I'm really sorry to have to tell you this, but the biopsy shows that you have cancer, um, colon cancer that is spread to your liver. And it was, it was like he was in a panic. He just didn't know what to do. And he just sat there quiet for about a minute or two. And then he looked at me and he said, you know, Dr. Panlat, am I going to die? And how long do I have? And people are in a panic. And so it's hard to talk about. And those are typically the two questions that they have right away. They're already thinking about you know, what's going to happen going forward? How am I going to talk about this? What am I going to do? Um, and so we did talk about it. And um, it turned out that Sam thought that he had maybe two or three weeks to live, uh, which was really sad to me. The, the thought that he might leave my office thinking he had only two or three weeks to live when, in fact, he had, um, I thought, about a year to live, which is almost exactly how long he lived. I mean, he did get treatment for the cancer. Uh, he did not very well with it. He ended up in the hospital pretty sick. There were times when he got more treatment for the cancer, got a lot of palliative care all the way from the beginning, um, and we took good care of him because we were able to talk about those things and really address those issues. And I find that often patients are thinking those things right away when they get that diagnosis. You have a stroke, you have heart failure, you have Parkinson's disease, you have cancer. People think, I'm going to die. And this happens to five thousand people every day in America are diagnosed with cancer. There are almost six million people living with heart failure. There are over five million people living with dementia in the United States. This is incredibly common. And what I tell my patients then is, how do you talk about it with your family? You know, directly. Share the news. You can't get help from people. You can't get support unless you talk about it. So you have to talk about it. You know, Share the news. 
I, I, at one point, someone called me, um, who I didn't know very, very well, but I knew, and she said, I'm very upset, would you mind coming to my home, actually, and discussing this issue with me, and I, and I went to her issue, and she disclosed to me at that point that her husband had Alzheimer's disease, mm-hmm. um, and actually had gotten, had deteriorated so much, he was now in an assisted living, and what came out of that conversation was that she was all alone with no support, mm-hmm. and the reason for that was is because she had told none of their friends. Yeah. She had hid it from them um, yeah. and had said, well, John decided to go to Florida. Now he's back. He's not feeling so good. It's probably the flu. I mean, it just went on and on and on. Um, and so she boxed herself into this corner where she uh, she absolutely, these four couples that they had been friends with for like 40 years, all right, um, had some idea of what was going on. They knew something, but they really didn't know. And so actually I suggested to her she bring them all together at one time and just tell them at one time because sometimes I think the repetition of it over and over and over again is is just as difficult um, as the telling you know of the first time absolutely it, it's really sad to have to break this news I like the idea of bringing people together the, the other thing I tell my my patients because I hear this you know oh I don't want to I don't want to share this I don't want to burden other people I often hear this from my patients I don't want to burden my husband I don't want to burden my wife in fact I had that conversation um, just this morning on rounds I was on rounds this morning in the hospital and we were talking with um, with a patient and she was telling us you know I don't I don't want to be a burden on my husband so we hear this idea of burden a lot. I don't want to tell my friends. And what I, what I learned early in my career from one of my colleagues, which is what I say now, is you know, if, the, if the tables were turned and your husband was sick, would you feel it a burden to take care of him? And invariably people say, no, of course not. I love my husband. I would want to take care of him. And so why do you think it's a burden on him? And I would say the same for friends. If you were sick... Uh, if your friend was sick and her husband had Alzheimer's, um, would you be burdened by knowing it? Would you feel it was embarrassing? Would you feel somehow obligated? Most people would say, no. No, I wouldn't feel obligated at all. I'd want to know. I'd want to help. In fact, I would feel terrible to find out later that she was going through this really difficult thing, and here I am, a good friend, and I'm, and I'm not able to help. And often just thinking that and kind of putting yourself in the other side makes it clear that, in fact, the people who are your friends and families who love you, they, they want to know because they want to help. We don't have very much time left, so I'm going to ask you to answer this as briefly as well as you can. But what about telling children or grandchildren? What are your suggestions for telling them? So very young children um, just need to know that everything, they're going to be okay. So children, you know, two, three, toddlers, they need to know they're okay. As children get older, they have a a greater comprehension of what is really going on, and they notice. They're very observant. Um, I think early on, telling your child or your grandchild, you know, grandma's sick, mommy is sick, the doctors are doing everything they can to help is probably enough. I always say follow the child's lead. If the child wants more questions, then try to answer them directly. Yes, mommy's being treated. Yes, grandma is going to the hospital because the doctors are going to try and help her. So trying to be as direct as possible. Don't, an- don't feel like you have to answer more. Just try to answer the question. I think with children who are about five or six, you have to be careful not to say when someone dies that mommy went to sleep uh, because they will take that literally. 
uh, and then they will be afraid to go to sleep. So you do have to be thoughtful about the language, and I do talk about that in my book about how to talk with children uh, so that you um, don't worry them needlessly. But they are very aware, and then being direct, and if they ask questions, to answer them. Uh, Sometimes they'll ask questions that are uncomfortable. Oh, if mommy's dead and they bury her, um, won't she be cold? How will she eat? So they have these very concrete questions when they're about five, six years old um, and trying to explain that in a very direct way. But as children get older, usually over age 13, they really understand that illness is serious, that death is final, and talking to them uh, compassionately but directly about what's going on can be very helpful. And then I often get asked, um, would it be okay to come visit? You know, should the child come visit? And what I always say is take the child's lead. In fact, this also came up this morning just on rounds, and the question was, should my 8-year-old son come visit? And I, what we say is ask the child. If a child wants to come and visit, absolutely they should be allowed. If they, uh, if they say, no, I'm okay, then they're okay. You can always take a picture um, with your smartphone and send it, and the child can look and see uh, what the situation looks like so they're not shocked or surprised. And then the last thing we do if they come to visit in the hospital is we always have a signal like tug on your ear if you want to leave. So they don't have to say they have to leave and you put somebody kind of responsible for the child. And so if the child feels uncomfortable, there's, there's a way to get out of that situation quickly. That's extremely, extremely helpful advice. We've been talking to Dr. Stephen Panellet, who's the author of Life After the Diagnosis. Um, Dr. Panellet, do you want to give us any other contact information? Sure, yeah. If you'd like more information, um, you can uh, find out more about me and my book, Life After the Diagnosis, at, uh, on my website, which is www.stevepantalat.com, S-T-E-V-E, Pantalat, P-A-N-T-I-L-A-T.com. And you can also find Life After the Diagnosis wherever you, uh, wherever you get books. And you can follow me on Twitter as well at, at, at Steve Pantalat. Thank you so much. This has been extremely helpful. You have right. very, very good advice. Thank you right. so much for being with Thank us. Thank you, Meryl. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Stay with us. We'll be right back with Dr. Bell Paul, um, who's going to talk to us about finding balance when someone else's chronic pain becomes your problem, too. Stay with us. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where's your dad? What's he doing? You'd know if he was at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. You'd know he's enjoying a full day of cooking, computers, yoga, golfing, and he's home by dinner. You'd know Sarah Care LPN and RN Nursing Care is with him to ensure he gets the right medications at the right dosages. You'd know. How's your dad? He's just fine. At Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. Call 330-451-6108 for one free day of care at Sarah Care. Do you understand what really needs to be done for your health? Or like many, are you mostly letting what you hear and see in today's media dictate your healthy lifestyle? It's time to get focused. There is a reason why cancer, heart disease, chronic fatigue, hypothyroidism, and other illnesses are running rampant in our world. Ganino Wellness Radio with Dr. John and Linda Ganino will show you that there are easy, preventative, everyday steps to get you back on track. Listen live every Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
You are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Caught Between Generations. I am Dr. Merle, and I'm here with Dr. Mel Paul, who's been on our show before. And I invited him back again because his information was so good, and he has such really fabulous insights that I wanted him to come back. Um, He is the medical director of the Las Vegas Recovery Center, and he was a key force in developing the chronic pain recovery program um, at the Las Vegas Recovery Center. He's written many books. But one of the books, one of his books that we're going to focus on today is Pain Recovery for Families, How to Find Balance When Someone Else's Chronic Pain Becomes Your Problem Too. Welcome back, Mel. It's so great to have you. So in the first part of the show, I I just want to clarify this for the listeners. We were talking about palliative care uh, for serious illness. So Would someone who has chronic pain be in need of palliative care? Is that a different process for a different type of illness? When I think about it, I think about someone who's going to be dying uh, and providing the best quality of life for the time that the person is still with us and the best death. Uh, I, I think the experience of chronic pain is really all about living uh, and finding a way to capitalize on the joy in life and uh, not be overwhelmed and defined by the the potential misery, the suffering uh, that's associated with chronic pain. So I think different in, in many ways uh, because it's really about living and living uh, successfully with quality. So in your book, in the, in the book that I just referred to, you discuss a family systems approach. Can you, mm-hmm. can you explain what that is? Well, I mean, we start out with uh, the, the family is, uh, in essence, an organization uh, made up of uh, members with uh, a variety of uh, responsibilities and hierarchy uh, and tradition and uh, uh, responsibilities and often uh, interrelationship and, and uh, levels of dependence. You know, if it's a parent and a child, uh, there are roles that people develop uh, and and a system develops around it. Uh, there are sort of unspoken, usually unspoken rules that, that guide the family system and uh, patterns of behaviors and interactions that over the course of of the long term become well-established but not necessarily healthy uh, ways of of being in that family. So you talk about homeostasis, I'm assuming as a way that the the family is used to functioning in some way, whether that be a positive or a negative, dysfunctional or not, that's how yes. they're used to operating. So now suddenly you have someone with chronic pain. You know, yes. how does that change things? Well, again, it depends. We can take a, a number of potential scenarios, but certainly if uh, the the main breadwinner, the, the parent who earns money and uh, is uh, 
alpha in the in the family system you know if it, whether it's the dad or the mom it, it's often the father uh if the father develops chronic pain then that uh, the role of primary caregiver and primary i should say primary breadwinner you know the person who who the family relies on for uh sustenance is removed from that role uh and of course the family's going to have to adjust to who's going to earn the money? Uh, is it going to be uh, relying on on a disability payment, or if the if the dad, let's say, can't work? Um, and and again, I mean, I don't want to be sexist <laughs> because it it could it could well be uh, a mom uh, who's the primary breadwinner in a family. It often is, or it's or there's joint income. But one of the impacts of uh, the the dominant uh, breadwinner being uh, developing chronic pain and associating with disability is going to impact finances and uh, you know where we go, what we spend, how how much we can do. And equally affecting is the person with chronic pain often becomes overwhelmed and consumed by the pain uh, with the the moods associated with chronic pain like depression and anxiety uh with with stressors and response to stress uh with with the discomfort itself which causes a whole change in in personal and and, and to interactive style and the net effect is that that person is effectively removed from the family um and the the family, depending on how healthy the system is, adjusts around it. But everybody's affected. The kids are affected. The spouse is affected. Uh, if there's a generation above or siblings, uh, they'll be affected. Uh, and again, I, you know, it, it's hard to give one particular picture. But the, but the scenario of the breadwinner being uh, affected by chronic pain really impacts the whole family. And then. There, there are gaps. You know, uh, if if it's a mom who is the primary breadwinner, the dad has to step up and earn money, uh, and the kids have to step up and be responsible for functions around the house that dad might have, or mom might have been responsible for. So it's really you can picture uh, the the seesaw tipping in a particular direction, and and in in order to level it out, uh, other other family members. Uh, need to and will step up uh, depending on on how the family accommodates to that. The the other concept that you talk about in the book is codependency. Yeah. Can, can you explain that a little bit and its role in in chronic pain? Yeah. Well, codependence is a term that was coined in the addiction field, and that's, of course, my background is in addiction, uh, drug addiction and, and uh, behavioral addictions. It really refers to my well-being relies on you being okay. Uh, I'm not okay if you're not okay. You know, the old joke is a codependence uh, jumps off a building and sees somebody else's life pass before their eyes. Uh, it, it's really about other focus. And uh, it, there's a whole lot of literature and background of, of what codependence is about, uh, that it, it's other focus, so I, do, I neglect myself. It, it, it emanates from fear and shame and usually is a manifestation of growing up in a dysfunctional system. Um, but the, the net effect is I'm other-focused, and in, in the case of chronic pain, if someone develops chronic pain, 
the, the distorted view that I can't be okay if you're not okay and you're never okay. <laughs> you know, the person with pain is never comfortable, is never fully functional, is never actively participatory. Uh, and we're talking now about chronic pain that's really a person with chronic pain who isn't doing well, somebody with chronic pain syndrome where they are disabled and they're depressed and they're anxious and they're uh, over-medicated and uh, unable to function. You know, that, that's, the, that's the characterization that I'm referring to. When that person is ill with chronic pain, everything revolves around them. Uh, and, and the codependent tendencies means I organize my life, my decision-making, my values, and my perceptions around you. And if you're, if you're disabled, I'm, I'm really in trouble. So how do you get out of that, Mel? I mean, what, what's the solution to that? Um, well... <laughs> You know, we've got four hours on the show, right? Is that the plan? Okay, you're going to tell me ongoing therapy. Okay. <laughs> There's nothing like cognitive behavioral treatment. Yeah, so, in a short, okay, me, short term. I, I want to say okay. one other thing, which is one of the reasons people are impacted uh, by others' pain is that we are circuited, our brains are circuited in uh uh, a, a social way. It's called social cognition. And there's a lot of research on this. So essentially, I feel your pain is a true statement, especially in a loving family where somebody is connected emotionally to somebody else. And and what we found is that if somebody else has a painful stimulus, my brain will respond to it and it'll respond more intensely if I really care about that person. So, you know, we're up against a physiological phenomenon uh, that that's very potent there's a whole lot of feelings that are associated with this codependent phenomena that have to be dealt with so you know most of the uh, of the interventions that we recommend uh, are related to self-awareness so the, the first step for a family member or a concerned person to, to deal with when when my codependence is overwhelming me is I have to pay attention to my needs I have to focus on myself and you know there are it's like in the airplane when the oxygen mask comes down you know who do you put the oxygen mask on if you're with somebody who who isn't able with a child or with somebody who's disabled? And I can tell you when I when I treat a group of families who have patients with chronic pain and substance use problems, they all say the other person first, and that's the that's the the root, the essence of the problem is you have to take really excellent care of yourself so that you'll be able to take uh, decent care of the person with pain. Thank you. I, I appreciate you saving me on that, but actually your answer was, was excellent and, and very, very helpful. It really was. We're talking to Dr. Mel Paul, and uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about some interesting uh, research that was in his book. We're going to talk about the solicitous spouse um, and whether that's really helpful or whether it's not really helpful. So stay with us. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. At SarahCare, we provide daytime activities and health-related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities at home by dinner. 
While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-Care.com. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to drmerrill at caughtbetweengenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, we're back. We've been talking to Dr. Mel Paul who is the medical director of the Las Vegas Recovery Center and the author of A Day Without Pain and also the co-author of Pain Recovery for Families. So before the break, Mel, I said that I found something very interesting in your book, uh, the one Pain Recovery for Families, about being solicitous. Actually, I'm so proud of myself, I actually could pronounce that word this time. (laughs) But, but, you know, it talks about, you know, I would think that being solicitous is a positive. That's something you yeah. want to do. But the research yeah. actually shows something a little different. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the way we treat people with chronic pain here at the Las Vegas Recovery Center is we focus on function, not on the pain. Uh, and there's a bunch of data that says the more focus on the pain, the worse the pain is. And the, the classic study is, of, uh, as you described, a solicitous spouse. So this is somebody who really cares about their spouse, who's very loving. And when the person is in pain, the solicitous spouse's response is to be very nurturing. Oh, sweetheart, what can I do for you? Is there anything? Oh, I feel so bad that you're in pain. And again, it's based in that circuitry that I talked about before the break, which is we are circuited one to the other so that I do feel your pain. Well, they, they had a person, a group of, of people who had chronic pain, and they, most of the people in the experiment had back pain. And so this is somebody who'd experienced pain for a long time, and they gave that person an electric shock in their back, so the same place that they'd been experiencing the chronic pain. And after they gave them the shock, they did two things. They measured their pain response verbally. So what's your pain score, 1 to 10? But they also measured the response of the brain which evidence pain. So there's particular parts of the brain that light up. In this case, it was the insula, which is an activating part of the, of the midbrain. And it's, a, it's an objective sign of how much pain the person experienced. So that's the setup. They gave the person the shock, and they did this experiment in the presence of the solicitous spouse and with the solicitous spouse out of the room. In the presence of the solicitous spouse, the pain scores doubled. And this was matched by the 
intensity of the pain on an objective basis with the brain scans. So what what does that mean? I mean, when I tell this story to families, they usually start to cry because what they conclude is it's my fault. I'm causing the pain to go up. And the truth of the matter is it's a very conditioned response, just like Pavlov and the dogs, you know, the Pavlov uh, rang a bell every time he uh, uh, gave the dogs a, a, a treat, and after a while, the dogs were responding to the bell rather than the actual treat. And in this case, the person is responding to the concern and raising their pain level up. Uh, so, and it, it, this is it's often misunderstood. So I, I want to really be very clear that this is not about the person in pain, you know, rubbing his hands or her hands and saying, I'm going to get more attention. But when a person is in pain, they do get more attention. And when they get more attention, they have more pain. <laughs> so the lesson for families is reinforce function, reinforce uh, well-being, reinforce activity, not the pain. Actually, I think for some families that would actually be comforting. I mean, I can't tell you how many people um, I meet with who will say, they, it always starts out the same way. They say, you know, I know I'm a terrible person for saying this. I feel horrible mm-hmm. saying this, but... Mm-hmm. All right. And then it comes out. So whether it's chronic pain or it's someone with dementia or a stroke mm-hmm. or whatever it is. And then what they usually say is, you know, there are just times I feel so angry, you know, yes. and I just want to say, you know, would you give me a break? I'm exhausted. All right. Yes. But of course, I would never say that. All right. And and it just makes their caregiving just doubly difficult. Right. Right. I, I mean, anger is a really... Uh, classic uh, feeling for the person with pain, but for the caregiver as well, for the, for the call it a codependent. Uh, and there's so many reasons to be angry. Uh, angry at the person for being sick, you know, as irrational, as unfair as that is. Angry with whoever's responsible, whether it's a drunk driver who caused an accident or uh, somebody who left the floor wet to, that caused the person to slip, or maybe it's God. You know, anger at the medical system for doctors for uh, perpetuating uh, drug use and surgery and, uh, you know, for or for not doing surgery. And, you know, there's insurance companies. And then, you know, with friends and family, the people that you rely on don't get it. They don't understand. So uh, and what's characteristic is the person who the, who's a chronic uh, codependent caregiver feels guilty for all that <laughs> they feel guilty for being angry uh and, and want to help so you know that's just a, a a micro picture of the kinds of dysfunction that happen uh, emotionally for the the person who who uh, is the subject of this book is the person who cares about somebody with chronic pain so I want to go back to the subject of being solicitous because I, I think this is um, uh, a critical issue. And um, for the listeners, I shared with Mel when we were offline a personal story, which I'll now share with you, um, about my husband who was um, falling very, very frequently. Actually, they found it to be a severe uh, B12 deficiency. So that's something else I'll pass on to you um, to be checked. Um, but... Um, um, his neurologist suggested that at least for a while he uses a walker. Now, he actually adapted 
much to my surprise, actually, pretty well to using the walker because at least now he was stable and he's not falling all the time. The the problem, and we're okay. the The problem mm-hmm. we're having is the people around us. All right. So, for instance, I was telling Mel last night we were at an event. We saw some people we hadn't seen for a while. And the next thing I know, they're just like, oh, my God, this is so terrible. I'm so sorry. You have to use a walker. And they're just going on and on and on. Um, And so I finally had to say, you know what? We're okay. It's enough. Yeah. All right. um, at which I'm sure they thought, oh, my gosh, you know, she's such a terrible woman, such a terrible <laughs> wife. But, you know, it was, you know, it was like we're really okay, you know. Yeah. Um, well, and I, I, I think it's the caregiver's job, if they're able, to, to do just that, you know, to make it clear, to have a very clear communication that not only are we okay, but it's really not helpful, <laughs> to get your sympathy in the way it comes across. I I know you mean well, you know, I don't want to shut you up, but here's what you could do to help us. You know, if, if, you know, we're coming in the room and struggling with the door, you could help open the door. That would be, that would be great, you know, and you could sit with us once we're settled in and, and hang out, you know, as, in, in as normal a fashion as possible. And then I'll go one step further, Muriel. If you can't do this, then we're not going to hang out with you. You know, we don't need to be around people who are uh, manifesting illness. And, uh, you know, if, if you and your husband are able to, you know, as a team, engage in your lives, uh, then, then the, that, that sort of well-meaning, misguided sympathy uh, hopefully will get deferred to someone else <laughs> and not to you. Uh, but, but I think it's human nature. You know, uh, people are disabled, and what do we do? We stare at them, you know. Uh, and, and I think that's part of, boy, I'm sure glad that's not me. And, you know, we, we're all one, one step away from, uh, uh, from that kind of outcome. So uh, I think speaking up is the, is the healthiest approach myself. Mel, I, I, I hate to end this because talking to you is always, I know, it's it's always so good. Um, Do you want to give us your contact information? Uh, Sure. I have a new website up. It's drmelpohl.com. And if you have any interest in what we do here at Las Vegas Recovery Center, there's lasvegasrecovery.com or our toll-free number is Oh, God. <laughs> I have to read this without my glasses. 800-790-0091. 800-790-0091 is the Las Vegas Recovery Center. And, and Mel, I'm assuming that you don't have to live in Las Vegas in order to um, perhaps enroll at the, at the Las Vegas Recovery Center. Is that accurate? No, no, that is accurate. We're, we, we're okay. a residential center, so people can come and, and do come from all over the country. Okay, great. Dr. Mel Paul, thank you so much for being with us today. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So you want to make sure you're listening to us next week when Dr. Michael Bruce will be with us. Um, You may have seen him lots of times on Dr. Oz, um, and he'll be talking to us about how to determine what your chronotype is. You'll find out if you're a bear or a lion or a dolphin or whatever. But the important thing is he'll be talking about how, depending on what your chronotype is, how to choose the best time of day to work diet, exercise, even have sex. You don't have to make big changes in your life. You just need to sometimes make these little changes in the time of day you do something. And Dr. Bruce says it will change your life. 
I hope you'll be with us next week on Call Between Generations. Thank you for tuning in to Caught Between Generations with Dr. Mel Griff. Our program is live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We hope to see you here next week.